welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, welcome back everyone. I'm very sorry that I'm not in Toronto right now because Toronto is in the midst of election fever. That's right, folks, for all our international listeners, for all our non-Toronto Canadian listeners... Buckle up, because we're going to tell you a little bit about local politics. Uh, We are entering, careening into a new election in our city. The two-term mayor, John Tory. Um, Listen, I don't want to make any predictions. I don't want to put my thumb on the scale. Uh, The polls suggest he's cruising to an easy third term. But, you know, maybe maybe if we work together, we can stop that. What do you think, Luke? So if you're one of the many people listening to this and you don't live in Toronto, um, you know, you haven't heard that there's a municipal election underway, you're kind of in the same boat, I think, as uh, a majority of Torontonians. I think this election has not really grabbed people at all. Uh, a few months ago in the provincial election, the Ontario election, uh, we had the lowest voter turnout in history. So that is uh, since 1867, the lowest voter turnout, probably lower uh, still if you go back to when Ontario was Upper Canada. Absolutely pitiable. The incumbent PC party led by Doug Ford uh, pursued as a very deliberate strategy, sort of suppressing the vote, being boring. They knew that victory would depend on low turnout. And in fact, this increased majority that they got in 2022 was earned on about the same number of raw votes as uh, they got in 2018. So that is how you win in politics today is by doing anti-politics. And Toronto's mayor, John Tory, is perhaps a version of this on steroids. John Tory, for some quick uh, context, and you know that'll give you a sense of what the political culture in this city and this province is, that you can have a mayor whose name is literally John Tory. I mean, it's like an Anglo-Tory political culture that we get from the 19th century. And because, you know, post-modernity has stripped politics of all kind of irony and subtlety, uh, yeah, the mayor is literally called John Tory. But John Tory was elected in uh, 2014. He is the former leader, a uh, very unsuccessful leader of the Ontario PC party. In fact, he uh, ran an also unsuccessful mayoral campaign in 2003 and was beat by the left of center choice, uh, David Miller. He is a guy uh, of a very affluent background. He's a multimillionaire, a card-carrying member of the Canadian elite, more or less. And uh, he failed so, so many times. He... As leader of the Ontario PC party, lost his seat in the 2007 uh, Ontario election, could not get anyone to step aside so that he could run in a, in their seat instead for uh, years, ran in a by-election and then was defeated in the by-election as well. Uh, I mean, almost unheard of in the history of our parliamentary system, not just in Canada, but in, in Commonwealth countries for the leader of a political party to lose their own seat in a by-election. In fact, you know, if there's somebody listening who's like a parliamentary history nerd, maybe you can tell me. This must have happened before, but it almost never happens. So that's who we're dealing with with John Tory. Now, in the 2014 Toronto election, the incumbent mayor, Rob Ford, had obviously uh, wreaked havoc on the city for four years. There was one to two years, I guess, of, you know, straightforwardly just normal, destructive right-wing governance. But then Ford, uh, in a way that obviously made international news before too long, became increasingly kind of erratic. And, um, you know, I think most people listening know what happened next. Um, Now, John Tory entered this race quite late, and around the same time, uh, Rob Ford had dropped out of running for re-election because he had cancer, and his brother, Doug, because the Fords, you know, do everything, you know, they're a firm, you know, they're kind of like our own kind of uh, more provincial, like suburban version of the Trump family or something, or I suppose the Clintons. 
The particular nomenclature they chose was the Canadian Kennedys, which was uh, very funny for a number of reasons. Anyway, Doug, uh, Doug took over, and this kind of created the perfect atmosphere for a candidate like John Tory in which to thrive, because John Tory, he had been a friend of the Fords, an ally of theirs. He'd actually given, uh, he donated to uh, both Doug Ford and Rob Ford before. But unlike a Ford, unlike a sort of suburban populist, John Tory's presentation is much closer to that of a traditional, bland, dull as ditchwater, center-right kind of politician. And uh, his political project, you know, uh, very much, I think, about tranquilizing the city. Uh, I think in 2014, a more perceptive Toronto Star columnist uh, referred to John Tory as the great tranquilizer. And I think that is more or less it. If you ever hear John Tory speaking or giving a press conference, it is incredibly rare to find him speaking declaratively about a policy, an ethical or a moral idea. He is always talking about process. He is always talking about the glacial pace at which change happens. He's always delivering these kind of technocratic sound bites. And uh, I think that if Ontario uh, reached the lowest voter turnout in its history a few months ago, I would be astonished if Toronto uh, at the mayoral level and I suppose the council level as well did not surpass that in, uh, in a few weeks time. God, I think of all those conversations that we used to have during the Rob Ford years. I mean, Rob Ford came to office very much on the back of, in the late 90s, Toronto and its suburbs were amalgamated into one city, a mega city, in this very awkward shotgun marriage. And, and he was very much brought into office on the momentum of discontent from the suburbs. So back in those days, we used to have all these conversations about, God, how do we how do we bridge the geographic and class divides that are, that are over overwhelming this city? How do we make a city that works for everyone? And mercifully, we don't have those conversations anymore. We don't have any existential conversations about the city. Um, we, we have John Tory, who basically has Rob Ford's politics. Now, some of the stakes of this election are uh, Doug Ford as premier with this massive majority government seems poised to make some very dramatic changes to Toronto's governance. During his first term, he halved the size of city council in what seemed to be a, a rather petty maneuver to hopefully take power away from some of the progressive councillors that he used to spar with back when he himself was a city councillor. Um, and now he looks poised to institute a strong mayor system in Toronto. Toronto currently has a weak mayor system, as it's called, where the mayor gets the same one vote as any council member on any council vote and is very much expected to, you know, create a alliances among council. Yeah, if I can just get in here for a sec to offer a little further context for this. I mean, I think particularly to a lot of American listeners, I think you know, British listeners as well, actually, who are listening to this, when you think about municipal politics or a mayoral administration, uh, you're thinking about something very different from what uh, has historically anyway prevailed in Toronto. You know, if you're in Britain, right, there's only two levels of government. You have your local council and then you have Westminster and then I suppose, um, you know, devolution in places like Scotland as well. If you're in the United States, you know, you have a, a strong mayor system. So you're electing a whole administration. And, you know, in Toronto, historically, the mayor, I mean, Toronto wasn't even amalgamated um, until 1999, incidentally, again, by the government of Mike Harris, in which uh, Doug Ford Sr. was a backbencher. But they amalgamated all of these uh, smaller municipalities into one in a kind of larger version of what Doug Ford has just done by having the size of council. Um, and so the mayor kind of just has these 
you know, discretionary powers to schedule certain business and things like that. But it's it's very different from, you know, we're not talking about, you know, the mayor of New York City or something like that. Uh, something else about cities in Canada is that they truly are creatures of the provinces. Municipal government is at kind of the whim of provincial government. So the provincial government can, for example, unilaterally have the size of city council. The discretionary powers of a city to levy taxes uh, and to spend are pretty limited, pretty constrained as well. So uh, basically you have property taxes, which, you know, it's kind of uh, politically very noxious to raise those. And the other thing you can do, which uh, arguably is what doomed the only left of center administration we've had since amalgamation, the Miller administration, uh, the other thing you can do is user fees. So Miller put something on the books called the vehicle registration tax which raised a lot of money, you know, to be spent on public goods, social goods, things like that. And, uh, you know, there will always be politicians like Rob Ford or newspapers like the Toronto Sun to call this communism and to create conditions whereby, uh, you know, very few, uh, you know, municipal uh, lawmakers or aspiring ones want to do any of this. So the stakes in these elections are both very high and also in a sense very low because anything the city does can just sort of be overruled by the province. And we do not have a very robust culture of local democracy uh, around this. And I suspect with a strong mayor system, it's going to wither even more, which, you know, really is the point. Well, it's already hard enough to elect a left of center mayor in Toronto because of this awkward amalgamation of the city. If a left wing mayor wants to get in, they would have to win basically all of the downtown and do well in at least one suburb to be able to carry the day. Well, yeah, here I would be a little bit optimistic because the thing about Miller's campaign in 2003 is that it was kind of a populist one. I mean, it was very slick and it was, you know, managed by kind of professional NDP organizers and that kind of thing. But I mean, it was very much a, a kind of populist anti-corruption message. It was all about, you know, accountability and was able to make kind of a positive case for, you know, a certain kind of uh, activist municipal government, that kind of thing. And in my opinion, this hasn't really been tried since. I mean, Miller was very popular throughout both his terms. In his second term, I think in 2007, I mean, he had a challenger, but he got something like 80% of the vote or something. And he had to beat three pretty uh, well-equipped, well-funded campaigns, uh, including John Tory's in 2003, the others being Barbara Hall and John Nunziata. Barbara Hall, who'd been the uh, mayor of uh, pre-amalgamation Toronto. He had to beat all those people. And, you know, he was just a, a local downtown councillor who started at 3% in the polls and ended up winning. So I'm convinced this can happen again. Again, in many cases anyway, the nominal left of center choice has, I think, not really pursued this kind of course. I mean, if we think back to 2010, when Rob Ford was elected, you know, everyone was saying, oh, how could this happen? And it was, it's pretty similar, really. I mean, it's kind of like asking the question about Donald Trump defeating Hillary Clinton. How could this happen? It's like, well, look at what the alternative was and look at the kind of campaign they ran. I mean, in 2010, the main uh, rival to Rob Ford was this guy, George Smitherman, who was a right-leaning Ontario Liberal cabinet minister who, before Ford got in the race, was very much running a kind of slash and burn, you know, we're going to, we're here to replace the tax and spend David Miller administration with, you know, fiscal rectitude and, and fiscal discipline. And, you know, then pivoted to like, please vote for me because I'm the only one who can, you know, marshal the forces of truth, justice and, and light and protect, you know, the multicultural Toronto we all uh, know and love from right wing parochialism or whatever. Uh, not very convincing. The left uh, had a much better candidate in uh, Olivia Chow, the former New Democratic MP in 2014, although for reasons that I still don't fully uh, grasp, part of her campaign's message anyway, I think retreated from some of the things that people liked about her. And I think if, uh, you know, maybe her 
campaign advisors had kind of let her be herself a little more, that might have been a more successful campaign. You think back to four years ago, where, as I understand it, the progressive forces in Toronto municipal politics, broadly defined, actually struggled to find a candidate. Um, and they found Jennifer Kiesmat, who was the former uh, city planner. I mean, you know, American listeners, again, will have some familiarity with this type of candidate, you know, the sort of nonpartisan public servant who is uh, butted heads with a right wing administration and then, you know, is kind of uh, held up as an alternative to it. I mean, Jennifer Kiesmat was somebody who, uh, you know, I knew a lot of people that were kind of working for her, but I, I just thought it was a very uh, unexciting campaign. And my lack of enthusiasm was, I think, confirmed a few years later when people were having a go at Michael Bloomberg. And I guess she'd been to, you know, one of his like municipal uh, boot camps or something. And she was like defending him online. And I thought, you know, well, uh, isn't that interesting? Toronto is like any city where, you know, once a city councillor is elected, it's very hard to get them out of the seat. You know, there are incumbents who stay there for decades and decades and decades who are very terrible, who coast by on name recognition. Nevertheless, the looming strong mayor system seems to have led to some more interesting dynamics in the council races. You know, there are seven seats where there's no incumbent now, and there are a lot of high profile candidates. And there's been a lot of talk about how certain of these candidates look like they're kind of focused aggressives, if you know what I mean. Um, I mean, a particular case in point is my own riding, University Rosedale, where Mike Layton, the left-wing counselor and son of Jack Layton, is stepping down. There are a number of high-profile candidates who are running to fill that seat, uh, one of whom is Diane Sachs, the deputy leader of the Ontario Green Party, former environmental commissioner of Ontario in Doug Ford's government, who is very much being sold as a progressive champion, being sold as, you know, a champion of the environment. And I mean, who doesn't care about the environment, right? But also somebody whose progressive credentials are, on a lot of other issues, quite poor. You know, she's talked a lot about her long relationship with John Tory. She's been against supporting homeless shelters. She's been for aggressive policing of encampments. And even some of the uh, more established left-wing counselors are facing opposition from candidates like this, you know, candidates who are sort of uh, superficially progressive looking, but would be poised to have, let's say, a less combative relationship with John Tory. Yeah, and some of them are openly kind of broadcasting this. Tory has sort of worked behind the scenes to create a sort of, you know, whole uh, informal slate. We don't have uh, municipal political parties in Toronto, although I think I've come around to the idea that we should because functionally they exist and it's just people can't actually see them. But Tory, you know, has been kind of working behind the scenes and he's, you know, being a very sort of, you know, inveterately centrist uh, kind of guy, very kind of small C conservative, very uh, obsessed with consensus and brokerage policy. You know, when he tries to find allies in downtown wards, he's not trying to find people who exactly match uh, his politics. He's trying to find people who will be sort of, you know, compliant representatives of his uh, administration to whatever the community is. So in various cases, you know, have these people who publicly they, they tout all their credentials as, you know, a community activist or whatever. And then when you actually dig into them, it's like, OK, well, actually, you're like a lobbyist. You're like a corporate lobbyist or, or whatever. It's very easy to be confused when faced with some of these candidates. And in fact, a lot of people who should know better 
uh, have been very easily confused. I'm not going to name the person, uh, a well-known progressive columnist in Toronto. He quote tweeted this thread about some of Diane Sachs's Tory connections. And, and he wrote, there's been some questioning about Diane Sachs's Tory connections slash loyalty. I hope she talks about all this. She was an excellent Enviro commissioner, took no guff from anybody, fired by Ford. Would be good to have a non-NDP progressive on council. And I mean, to that, I just want to say like, if it quacks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, it's a duck. You don't need her to come out and say, well, we'll all fight John Tory when he's wrong. Look at what she's supported. Look at what her record is. I mean, it speaks for itself. You don't need her to come out and say, don't worry, I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, these sort of, uh, you know, fake contrarianism of a take like that, the sort of fake open-mindedness of saying, oh, well, what about, what about we get some uh, some non-NDP progressives on uh, on council? It's like, okay, well, what if they're against building homeless shelters? I mean, I don't know. There are a number of pretty basic purity tests that I feel uh, more than comfortable applying. In fact, I think it is basically a moral and ethical obligation to apply certain purity tests. At the municipal level, one of those for me is just if you are against building homeless shelters, if you say anything that even could open the door to closing existing homeless shelters, uh, you don't get my vote. Uh, It's that simple. And one of the many frustrating things about John Tory's Toronto is that because of the way he does everything and because of the way he talks, the mayor of this city almost speaks with like the voice of a bureaucracy where no one is actually responsible for anything. And so when there are deep cuts to the services that homeless people depend on, uh, which are the direct result of his leadership, in fact, it never sticks to him because he's just able to kind of float above it all. It's absolutely maddening. And this was impressed on me watching the debate uh, this week, which gotta say, you know, even if you're not from Toronto, if you like sort of weird political kitsch, you know, this this debate is, uh, I think, one of the funniest uh, municipal debates I've ever seen. You know, I do love this city and I, I feel very uh, lucky to live here. And, you know, it's a really wonderful place. And I feel like it's a great place in spite of itself sometimes. To set the scene a little bit, apparently John Tory has been skipping a lot of the debates. Again, it's you know, because of his kind of anti-political politician, uh, the less you debate, the better. But I think in one of the only two real debates we're going to have last week, uh, he did attend this one with five other candidates, which was uh, held by uh, CARP, which is, uh, I guess, an organization that represents senior citizens in some fashion. I'm not really familiar with it. This was put on by the broadcaster Zoomer Media, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Will, I'm, I'm fairly certain is a sort of local TV network watched exclusively or more or less exclusively by by people over the age of 65. What you have to understand is Zoomer Media was created before the word Zoomer was applied to uh, Generation (laughs) Z. It was created about 15 years ago, and it was used to describe boomers with zip. That's right, Zoomers. (laughs) They're boomers with zip, folks. Well, that's important context because the moderator of the debate is somebody you might uh, kind of affably describe as a boomer with zip. Um, And, you know, this this debate was taking place kind of within the confines of her show, which as soon as you start, I mean, I've never seen it, never heard of her. But as as soon as you start watching it, you realize like, okay, this lady is a very big fish in this particular pond. And very early in the debate, she just kind of abandoned a lot of the etiquette, you know, traditional etiquette of a moderator and just started weighing in with her opinions because you know, hey, it's her show. And about halfway through, (laughs) she proceeded to deliver a monologue, which is unlike anything I've ever seen from a moderator in a debate of this kind. But as I move around the city, the sense I get is of a city that has given up. 
given up trying to manage and coordinate and deliver the basics while we're in the midst of a tremendous growth spurt. And that growth seems to be the justification for dirty streets, overflowing garbage cans, year-old potholes, abandoned construction equipment blocking traffic lanes, the stench of overflowing sewage invading a neighborhood, a problem that has been recurring in certain places for years. So what I love about that is it starts out very normally. It's, it sounds like she's just kind of teeing up like a very typical question. Like, what will you do as mayor to, you know, uh, make life better for residents or something? And then she just like starts rattling off these like escalating grievances, crescendoing in a problem I was not aware of, which is the stench of raw sewage flowing in the streets. We've spent a lot of time on this, and I I do want us to get to the movie shortly, but so we don't go out on either a note of clownishness or pessimism here, uh, I do want to say there are some pretty great candidates running, and I want to name a few of them. Uh, As Will was saying, there are actually an unusual number of seats, as it were, open, because a record number of incumbents decided not to seek re-election. This has meant that we're losing uh, a few really good people, including Mike Layton, who uh, I know he has a young family. Uh, he decided not to run quite late because I think with the strong mayor system, you know, a lot of these people are unable to do a lot of what they want to do anyway. And with the, you know, the strong mayor system in place, you know, council will be even less relevant. But in his ward, where, as you said, Diane Sachs is running, uh, Norm DePascali is going to be getting my vote. Uh, this is in Ward 11. Norm does talk about homelessness in uh, kind of one of the main campaign videos he's put out. And frankly, that's good enough for me. Uh, in Ward 10, Ozma Malik, who's uh, someone I've crossed paths with a few times, I think she's going to be a great candidate. Uh, my friend Alejandra Bravo, who's a, a very good friend, has run uh, many times, very, very hardworking community leader, someone I first met through our, uh, our joint work at the Broadbent Institute. Uh, she came within about 50 votes of becoming a member of parliament for Davenport last fall in the 2021 federal election. Uh, she is running for the second time in Ward 9, which is uh, the municipal version of Davenport. And I think she's got a very good chance of winning. She'll be a, a fantastic voice on council. And one other thing is, uh, you know, in the last election uh, at the mayoral level, I actually left my ballot blank. I mean, I really could not bring myself to vote for Jennifer Kiesmat. She was wasn't going to win, but uh, more importantly, and I'm actually happy to vote for a noble defeat uh, if the defeat is an honorable one. And I just didn't think that was going to be the case, uh, you know, voting for a kind of, you know, small liberal who, you know, I, I saw her speak at a luncheon downtown and, you know, she was talking about how, well, we just need to get developers and communities sitting down at the same table or something like that. And I thought, yeah, this whatever politics you'd call this, the, these are not mine. But watching the debate this week, uh, it was very clear to me that Gil Penalosa, who's running for mayor, is an absolutely credible left-wing alternative who is talking about homelessness, who is talking about better public transit, who is talking about the things that I think a majority of Torontonians uh, actually care about and uh, would be happy to vote for if we did not have uh, such a kind of tranquilized and soporific political culture, courtesy, among other things, of our current mayor. But he is absolutely going to be getting my vote, and uh, I'm wishing him well on the 24th. Well, that's Toronto politics for you. Before we get to our movie for this episode, I do want to tell you folks about, you guessed it, the Michael and Us Patreon. That's right, folks. Patreon.com slash Michael and Us. For the low, low price of five Yankee dollars a month, you get an extra episode every week. Folks, that's double the content. It's everybody's fantasy. Recent Patreon-exclusive episodes have included, can you believe this? It took us 372 episodes and we finally, finally got to supersize me. 
does it hold up? Uh, does it not hold up? Um, I mean, you can, you can probably guess the answer to that, but you can hear <laughs> us uh, talk about it uh, at length. Also, recent Patreon episodes on such films as Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall, and this week, uh, I went on Tubi and watched a movie called Trump vs. the Illuminati. What is it? Uh, is it good? Uh, you never know. Uh, but I will give you a full rundown on what Trump versus the Illuminati is. That plus other bonus content and a sense of community and belonging, which is the most important thing of all. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. So we have an absolutely perfect film to discuss this week, uh, a really wonderful movie which deals beautifully in many themes, one of which is bureaucracy. And there's a very funny scene early on when, uh, you know, some locals are trying to get a park built and uh, they go to different bureaucracies uh, only to have the bureaucracy hand things off to another bureaucracy. Until finally, the whole thing uh, circuitously goes back to the bureaucracy where they first uh, introduced the idea. So, you know, is it public affairs? Is it public works? Is it the sanitation department? Is it the parks department? Is it the department for child services? Well, no department wants to take responsibility. To break the fourth wall of this show a little bit, right next to the Gore-Lieberman studios, where we record every episode, and are of course recording this one as well, uh, there are some buskers who like to play every single week. Sometimes they play two afternoons a week, sometimes it's three. They've been doing this for many years, and I hate to sound like a NIMBY, but I mean, really, it is so incredibly disruptive when we are trying to record, when you're trying to watch a beautiful Japanese film, uh, as was the case this afternoon from 19. 1952, dealing in themes of existence and life and love and family. And uh, people are playing absolutely awful derivative covers uh, very loudly of kind of top 40 songs and things like that. You know me well, Will. Uh, I hope the listeners on this show know me well enough by this point to know that I am not a please let me speak to the manager type of person. But as a man once said, these are the times that try men's souls. And I was forced uh, to, well, try to speak to the manager uh, some time ago because <laughs> you can imagine, uh, you know, it's like a Saturday morning or something. You're trying to sleep in and all of a sudden you hear this kind of, you know, dull rumble of like a trombone. And then before you know it, uh, a swelling version of like Jackson 5 ABC with like, you know, a six piece orchestra with drums. I am many, many floors up and I can hear this with the balcony door closed, the balcony window closed. I can go right to the back of the apartment into the, the room that's back there and close the door and I can still hear it. That's how loud it is. It drives me crazy. It drives my partner crazy. It is absolutely maddening. I never really called the city to make this type of complaint before, uh, and I did. Uh, I first did this, I wanna say about a year and a half ago. You can imagine this was even worse with COVID because you couldn't really uh, go anywhere. And, uh, you know, after, you know, many delays, I finally got uh, hooked up with some bureaucrat uh, who was, you know, trying his best to be helpful, but uh, finally sort of quoted me a bunch of bylaws, which apparently arbitrarily say that 
as long as you're not using amplification, if you play uh, music or make noise during a certain portion of the day, the decibel level does not matter. So I guess by the logic of our municipal bylaws, an atomic explosion would be fine because there's no electric amplification going on there. So I was told eventually that this guy could not do anything, but there was another department I could contact. And I think I've since spoken to three additional departments, all of whom have proceeded to refer me to the previous department I spoke to until now I've just been referred uh, exactly uh, as in the scene I described from the movie to the department uh, that I started with. So yeah, there's nothing I can do. Well, I'll just say that I've been to Luke's apartment many times. I've heard this ensemble many times. Um, I hate to say it, but I'm in complete agreement with Luke. I hate their music, hate everything about them. And if John Tory wants to run on limiting free speech, and this is the route he takes, uh, I will vote for him. Uh, Anyway, the movie is Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru from 1952. This was, uh, along with Super Size Me, the co-winner of our monthly superdelegate poll. Uh, the superdelegates, they're evolving, they're gaining sentience, they've realized that if they make a tie through precedent, decided that we're going to do both movies. Yeah, I think we might need to implement a strong mayor system of our own there to stop them doing that. But in this case, the result was pleasant because we finally got to watch Akira, which I wanted to talk about on the show for quite a long time. It's a, just a wonderful and beautiful film. Oh, man. So I don't want to bring the mood down, but um, it was the great Robert Warshaw who said, a man goes to the movies. The critic must be honest enough to admit that he is that man. Uh, First of all, this movie is a masterpiece. One of Kurosawa's very best. Maybe even one of the greatest movies ever made. I'll just say that for personal reasons, I hated watching this movie right now. Oh, my God. I am looking forward to the day when I'm recovered enough from dealing with a 60-something man with cancer that I can enjoy a movie like this in a slightly more dispassionate way. Earlier this year, after my dad died, I requested that on this podcast we watch Cries and Whispers. I was trying to figure out, why did I want to watch that one? But this was giving me so much grief. And I think it's because I don't want to paint Cries and Whispers as any sort of like nihilistic movie. It's a it's a rich emotional experience. But it depicts death and disease as uh, very awful and abject things. And I think in my experience with cancer, it's something like a black hole. There is certainly a lot of time for sadness and regret. Um, And this movie, by the way, does a lot of justice to that in a way that I found just a little bit painful. But there is not a lot of time for the strength of that one last heroic gesture that casts a person's life in a whole new light. I mean, this movie touches on uh, many different ideas. You know, one of the things it makes us think about is how we might better live our lives. Um, And I feel like, I don't know how to describe this, but that's that's a lesson for the living, not for the dead. You know what I mean? It's like, by the time you're towards the end of cancer, at least in my experience, like, you're kind of done, you know? So I'm looking forward to being able to, you know, hopefully when I watch this movie again in 10 years, I'm going to look at it a little more dispassionately because I found it actually quite an upsetting viewing experience at times. You know what I mean? Well, the comparison to Cries and Whispers is interesting. Um, And, you know, I've always found, I think perhaps I find this a little more than you, at least about that film. Uh, But as I said, and I think I have said every time we've discussed a Bergman film uh, on this show or off this show, I've always said to you that I've never quite experienced Bergman's films according to what I think the received wisdom about them is, which is that, you know, they're depressing or that they're ridden through with a sort of existential sadness. I mean, I know what people mean when they say that, but even in the case of something like 
Cries and Whispers, which is a very upsetting, kind of viscerally upsetting movie. I think abject was the word you used, and that's quite right. I do think that there is something of an affirmative message at the end of it. Having said that, I think your comparison between that film and this one uh, still stands, because this film does have, I think, in probably what is almost certainly its most famous uh, shot, its most famous scene, uh, a kind of triumphant conclusion in spite of everything. And I wouldn't use the word triumphant to describe the ends, end of Cries and Whispers. The Bergman film that I think is most like Akiru, uh, even though it comes a little bit after, is Wild Strawberries, uh, which is similarly the story of an older gentleman. In his case, he's not dying. He's going to Stockholm to get an award for his very uh, distinguished career, I think, in the sciences. And, uh, you know, he goes on this kind of road trip and he ends up reflecting on his life. Um, and it's a very beautiful and, and profound movie. Another film I want to discuss on the show sometime. The story of Akiru, for those who haven't seen it, is very simple, despite taking place over about uh, two and a half hours. It's quite a long movie. The story concerns a bureaucrat who's approaching retirement age, and he's not a big-time bureaucrat. He works at something called the Department of Public Affairs, which, incidentally, I love that as a flourish. You know, I don't speak Japanese, but I can assume that that's more or less a direct translation. And I love Kurosawa's choice to call the department that, because it's kind of the broadest and therefore the most meaningless mandate or remit for a department. What the hell is a de you know, municipal department of public affairs? Now, Akiru is partly based on Leo Tolstoy's novella, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, which comes kind of later in Tolstoy's writings. It was published, I think, in something like 1886. And it is a novella, which is about a judge in 19th century Russia um, who's suffering from a terminal illness. It was written after Tolstoy's uh, religious conversion, which is kind of one of the big turns in Tolstoy's writing and style. And so early in Akiru, we get to spend a little bit of time with Watanabe, the main character. And uh, there's a kind of omniscient narrator who, in a wonderfully simple and kind of evocative voiceover, uh, says that, you know, he used to try once. He used to be committed to his work. He used to try to get things done. But now he's only killing time. You can't call this living. He's been dead for 20 years now. He used to have life in him. And now he's been completely worn down by the bureaucratic minutiae of the machine so terribly busy, but in reality he does nothing at all except try to keep his position. There's nothing left of that will or passion. The best way to protect your place in this world is to do nothing at all. But is this enough? Is this really enough? So Watanabe is this kind of pencil-pushing bureaucrat. These early scenes are a marvelous depiction of post-war Japanese bureaucracy. He's just kind of surrounded by papers. There are these kind of big committee rooms where people are having endless discussion, but it's clear that they're not really doing anything at all. And we see this in the montage I already described of um, a local citizens group that is trying to get a park built and they're just gonna kind of getting handed off, you know, to different departments. And it's just impossible to do anything proactive at all. Yeah, it's impossible to do anything proactive at all, although every now and then there is the implication that if important people want something done, it can easily be done. Uh, not to jump ahead too far, but powerful interests in the city are very interested in having a red light district built in a particular area. And it's clear that to stop that would be just as hard as to actually build a playground on that exact area uh, from a different direction. Towards the end of retirement, after a 30-year career during which he has apparently not missed a single day at the office, he is diagnosed with stomach cancer. On paper, he's lived a very comfortable and successful bourgeois existence, uh, but the diagnosis has forced him to confront the reality that he's not satisfied with his life. 
in addition to the meaningless and in fact actively counterproductive job that he holds, he's a widower who now has a very frosty relationship with his grown son and daughter-in-law. They are preoccupied with the future inheritance that they'll be entitled to. Yes, if you're familiar at all with uh, post-war Japanese cinema, you're going to notice a number of things in Ikiru, which are characteristic of many Japanese films from this time. We've talked before on this show about another Japanese director who's very dear to both Will and myself, Yashijiro Ozu, who's famous for films like Tokyo Story. And uh, there's a little bit of Tokyo Story in this movie as well. In pre-war Japanese cinema, something that recurs is a sort of dethronement of uh, the patriarch and a sort of decline of the family uh, as kind of, uh, you know, industry and, and capitalism come to Japan. And after the war, you find that theme taken further, often in this very sort of mournful direction. And this is the whole plot of Tokyo Story, really. Uh, younger people have really no time for their elders anymore because they're too busy living in, you know, bustling cities and pursuing their careers. And in Akiru, Watanabe's son, Mitsuo is, as you said, mainly concerned with uh, his will and the inheritance, which is so unbelievably painful to watch these scenes because, I mean, what it what it really signifies is that for all intents and purposes, uh, just as the narrator says at the beginning, you know, Watanabe has been dead for 20 years. I mean, even to his own son with whom, you know, we get a sense at one point he may have had a very close relationship with him. But at this point to his son, he's kind of functionally dead. You know, his son has already moved on from him and is just, you know, waiting for him to die so he can get the inheritance. So that's one of the things that if you're familiar with Japanese cinema from, uh, you know, the 40s and 50s, um, you may notice. Yeah, you brought up the Tokyo Story comparison. And of course, I thought of that too. Ozu's treatment of this subject, the decline of the family and the generation gap is quite a bit more tender than Kurosawa's here. I mean, I don't necessarily think the son in this movie is a wholly unsympathetic character, or at least not a character that you can't empathize with in some ways. But in Ozu's movies, the younger characters kind of have their own, um, you know, like the son character in this movie is an up and coming guy. He's full of piss and vinegar and feels that he has his whole life ahead of him. In Tokyo Story, uh, the younger generation are also painted in different shades of failure and disappointment. They're struggling with their own unhappiness. Something else that appears in this film, albeit in a more ambient way, which is, um, you know, a recurring thing in post-war Japanese cinema, uh, is just the influence of the United States, because, of course, the country uh, was occupied after the Second World War, after the uh, horrific bombing of Tokyo and other Japanese cities, and, of course, after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as well. So it's not uncommon in films from this era out of Japan to see American beers being drunken in pubs, to hear American music to see American brands. We talked about Ozu's film Good Morning, I don't know, a year ago, something like that on this show. And that's very much the case. Consumer culture, in a sense, and even capitalism to some extent, or, or you know, the, the post-war version of it, uh, is almost kind of synonymous with Americanization in some way. And that is not a major theme of this movie, but it certainly appears in a number of places. And in a way, I think it's quite jarring because, you know, this is a Japanese film that was made in the early 1950s. And so if you're watching it today and you're not a native Japanese speaker especially, it does feel like a somewhat foreign object. And then all of a sudden you have these kind of violent intrusions of blues or jazz music, kind of American art forms. At one point, uh, there's a sort of saloon scene or a nightclub scene in this movie uh, where a bunch of people start singing Happy Birthday. And there's something kind of uncannily strange about that. Getting back to the plot, Watanabe's diagnosis has made him a condemned man, but also a liberated man. Uh, he can reinvent his life 
behave however he wants in these last few weeks or months. He doesn't have to do this job he hates anymore. He doesn't have to live the life he hates anymore. So he experiments with a couple of different options. On one night, uh, he's persuaded by this young novelist who takes pity on his plight to go out on a decadent night on the town. This guy has one of my favorite lines in the movie, actually, where he takes pity on Watanabe and is instantly very sympathetic to him. And then as Watanabe tells him that he has stomach cancer, the guy says to him, well, misfortune teaches us the truth. You were a slave to your own life. Now you'll be its master. And then after this, the second act of the film consists of Watanabe trying to find a sense of purpose or a sense of vigor, a sense of life in kind of sensual pleasures. You know, he's at a bar trying to drink expensive sake, which he's denied himself the pleasure of drinking, it seems like, throughout his whole life. Uh, then we see him try gambling. We see him go to a nightclub and see a striptease. We see him listen to loud music. The music, of course, is where you hear a lot of the uh, the kind of American influence. And then I think probably the second most memorable scene uh, occurs when it, suddenly everything in the nightclub slows down. And with piano accompaniment, Watanabe sings a tune called Gondola no Uta. was a popular romantic ballad uh, in Japan. I think it dates from about 1915. So everything slows down and this unbelievably powerful scene, we get to hear this song. Now apparently uh, Kurosawa told the actor Takeshi Shimura to sing the song as if you are a stranger in a world where nobody believes you exist. Uh, now that's a very cryptic instruction, uh, but it's one that he followed absolutely to the T and this is a, an incredible scene as a result. Watanabe experiments with another path when he makes the acquaintance of a younger female employee at his office named Toyo. She's resigning from the job, and he begins, um, I guess you could say, following her around, or they have a sort of, uh, not exactly a romance, but a sort of partnership. As they go repeatedly out on the town together, uh, he spends a great deal of money on their adventures together. His son is, of course, very upset and concerned that this flighty young woman is robbing him of his inheritance. Their relationship begins to fray, but just as it's fraying, she mentions that she's excited to start a new job making toys, and that by making these toys, she feels great personal significance and satisfaction. It's as if she's playing with all the children in the country. And this is when Watanabe has the epiphany that he can do something great with his life. He can finally do one significant thing before he dies. And he remembers one of the many projects that was brought to his desk that it was essentially his job to stop dead in its tracks. And that was a playground in this area where powerful forces are trying to get a red light district built. Now in the last third of the movie, there's a sudden jump to Watanabe's wake, where his family and his co-workers, as well as certain city dignitaries, are all gathered to eulogize him. We find out that the playground was indeed built, but at this wake, the conversation is very much centered around, well, Watanabe didn't build it. 
Very strange conversation to be having at somebody's funeral, but everybody is reassuring themselves. Oh, uh, all the departments chipped in to make this playground. Uh, Well, the deputy mayor was the one who really navigated all the intricacies of council. You know, who can can forget uh, the people who actually uh, put the bricks in the ground? You know, Watanabe didn't do that. And then in a series of flashbacks, we see it really was Watanabe through his sheer determination going from desk to desk. Uh, At one point, the powerful and I should say very shady forces behind the red light district ruffle up his collar and threaten his life. And he gives them a look that indicates he has no life left to lose. Yes, this scene at his wake is quite extraordinary because initially it doesn't seem like it's going to be more than a sort of throwaway scene. And I mean, it feels like it occupies about the last quarter of the movie, something like that. But as Will said, it serves as a kind of anchor for these flashbacks because the characters, many of whom are his co-workers, sort of talk their way through uh, the creation of the park, sort of beginning from the premise that, you know, the very bureaucratic premise that, well, everyone's sort of responsible for this, which means, you know, no no one individual is. And then talking it out, I mean, the, the, the scene is remarkable because as they get drunker and drunker, you know, with every cup of sake, they get closer and closer to the truth, which is that actually this park never would have been built. The playground never would have been built if not for the efforts of Watanabe. And they also are able to deduce that it was because he was dying. And by the end of it, they're all vowing to hold on to this feeling forever and bring the same sense of purpose to their work. Now, as I said, this is a very long movie. And one of the things that's extraordinary about it is really, I mean, it does just have this very simple three-act structure. Not a great deal happens. There are many, many scenes of just people talking in rooms. I mean, rather like the other Kurosawa film we uh, talked about not too long ago, High and Low. Although unlike that film, you know, there isn't some kind of meticulous procedural being worked out. In this case, I think Kurosawa is instead trying to immerse us just in the sort of bureaucratic tedium of everything. And the result of that, paradoxically, I think, is that the ultimate impact of the film, and particularly its most famous scene, which can't be longer than about 30 seconds, is extraordinarily powerful. If you've never seen Akiru, there's a very famous scene which appears on, among other things, the box uh, of the Criterion disc. But Watanabe is sitting and swinging gently uh, on a swing in the playground that he's gotten built as it very gently snows. And all while this song, uh, Gondola no Uta, plays again. It's a very short and memorable scene, and it's incredibly powerful. And there's another scene like it that ends the movie, where, you know, having resolved to, uh, you know, live lives of vigor and use bureaucracy to uh, carry out the public good, you know, after uh, the bureaucrats have recovered from the hangovers they've received at Watanabe's wake, you know, it's pretty clear that they've just kind of gone back to work, and, you know, that's that's not really happening. They've been sucked back into the tedious uh, mechanical existence that they were all living before. But you nevertheless get this shot of the playground. And there are children playing in it, you know, happy children going down the slide, swinging on the swings. Uh, And then there's one swing, the swing that he was on in the other scene, which is just swinging gently by itself, even though no one's on it, in a kind of silent tribute to him. As one of his colleagues from the department stands on a bridge overlooking the park and looks down on it. And again, this is just an incredibly simple scene, but uh, the power of it is almost indescribable. I mean, I found myself incredibly moved by the time I got to the end of the movie, uh, despite the fact that you know, much of it consists of these kind of uh, very long and discursive scenes where not very much happens. Kurosawa unsurprisingly uh, described this film 
is coming out of his own meditations on death. I think he once said, how could I bear to take a final breath? While living this life, how could I bear to leave it? There is, I feel, so much for me to do. I keep feeling I have lived so little. Then I become thoughtful, but not sad. So that's kind of the obvious existential reason he wanted to make this film. Uh, but he said something else when he was accepting a prize at the Venice Film Festival for the film Rashomon, another of his most famous films. He said, everyone likes to receive prizes and so I'm happy, but I'd be even happier if I were getting it for having shown something of contemporary Japan. So as Donald Ritchie, uh, the film scholar who's done, I, I think it's fair to say more than anyone else to kind of uh, popularize and write about Kurosawa's films in English, he said, of Ikiru, he, Kurosawa, uh, in other words, wanted to show his country as it is and at the same time wanted to finally make a film directly about one of the themes which has occurred in most of his earliest work, the problem of identity, the problem of living. Modern Japan has perhaps never been so fully exposed in both senses of the word as in this film. It is an extremely powerful indictment not only of official bureaucracy, but also of the world as it exists. These who see Akiru as a social statement have their reasons for doing so, though to see it only as a statement is to do it an injustice. For me, more than in any of his other pictures, Kurosawa has managed an uneasy truth, has managed an uneasy truce between the part of him, scandal, record of a living being, the bad sleep well, that says social indignity is the answer, and the other parts of him, Rashomon, the lower depths, high and low, which knows perfectly well that it is not. This has unbalanced some of his pictures, The Quiet Duel, Scandal, The Bad Sleep Well, but here, these two concerns sustain and fructify each other. Now, Richie goes on to talk about other things, including the genesis of the script and some technical notes around the film. But I wanted to send us out today by reading from Kurosawa himself, because in the early 1980s, after his uh, suicide attempt about, I think, 10 years earlier, and before he passed away in, I think, about 1998, Kurosawa uh, wrote a wonderful autobiography that's called Something Like an Autobiography. This isn't directly about Akira, which actually isn't one of the films that receives a lot of discussion in the book, but the passage in Something Like an Autobiography biography that has always stuck with me the most belongs to a passage that is simply called the Japanese, in which Kurosawa describes the scene on the occasion of Japan's surrender in 1945. After the war, my work went smoothly again, but before I begin to write about that, I would like to look back once more at myself during the war. I offered no resistance to Japan's militarism. Unfortunately, I have to admit that I did not have the courage to resist in any positive way, and I only got by ingratiating myself when necessary and otherwise evading censure. I am ashamed of this, but I must be honest about it. Because of my own conduct, I can't very well put on self-righteous airs and criticize what happened during the war. The freedom and democracy of the post-war era were not things I had fought for and won. They were granted to me by powers beyond my own. As a result, I felt it was all the more essential for me to approach them with an earnest and humble desire to learn and to make them my own. But most Japanese in these post-war years simply swallowed the concepts of freedom and democracy whole, waving slogans around without really knowing what they meant. On August 15, 1945, I was summoned to the studio along with everyone else to listen to the momentous proclamation on the radio. The Emperor himself was to speak over the airwaves. I will never forget the scenes I saw as I walked the streets that day. On the way from Sashigaya to the studios in Kanuta, the shopping street looked fully prepared for the honorable death of the hundred million. The atmosphere was tense, panicked. There were even shop owners who had taken their Japanese swords from their sheaths and sat staring at the bare blades. However, when I walked the same route back to my home after listening to the Imperial Proclamation, the scene was entirely different. 
The people on the shopping street were bustling about with cheerful faces, as if preparing for a festival the next day. I don't know if this represents Japanese adaptability or Japanese imbecility. In either case, I have to recognize that both these facets exist in the Japanese personality. Both facets exist within my own personality as well. If the emperor had not delivered his address urging the Japanese people to lay down their swords, if that speech had been a call instead for the honorable death of the hundred million, those people on that street in Sashigaya probably would have done as they were told and died, and probably I would have done likewise. The Japanese see self-assertion as immoral and self-sacrifice as the sensible course to take in life. We were accustomed to this teaching and had never thought to question it. I felt that without the establishment of the self as a positive value, there could be no freedom and no democracy. My first film in the post-war era, No Regrets for Our Youth, takes the problem of the self as its theme. But before I go on to talk about it, I would like to say a little more about myself during the war. In wartime, we were all like deaf mutes. We could say nothing, or if we did, all we could do was repeat in parrot fashion the tenets taught by the militarist government. In order to express ourselves, we had to find a way of doing so without touching on any social problems. This was the reason that haiku poetry enjoyed a new vogue during the war. The doctrine of flowers, birds, and suggestion in poetry put forth by the modern haiku poet Takahama Kyoshi was in short one way to avoid the censor's teeth. We even organized a haiku club at the Toho Studios. From time to time, we could meet to compose poems at a Buddhist temple outside of Tokyo. The motive, however, was not simply the enjoyment of writing haiku. It was because outside of Tokyo, the food situation was a little better and we could be assured of finding something to eat. However, people with empty stomachs can't gather together with a vacant feeling and produce good haiku, even if they knock their heads together. You can't do anything well unless you have your full strength and will to pour into it. During this time, Time, I too wrote many haiku, but not one of them is worth setting down here. They are all superficial and affected. Around this time, in a book of Takahama Kiyoshi's poetry theories, I came across a haiku I must recommend. It was entitled, A Waterfall. On the mountaintop, water appears and tumbles down. When I first read it, I was struck with amazement. It was apparently a poem by an amateur, but I felt as if its pure, clear vision and simple, straightforward expression had hit me over the head. My affection for my own poems, which were no more than words lined up and twisted around in different ways, dried up completely. Simultaneously, I recognized my lack of education and talent, and I felt deeply ashamed. There must be many such things I thought I understood, and yet really know nothing about. My reaction was to resume a study of traditional Japanese culture. Up until that time, I had known nothing at all about pottery and porcelain, and my familiarity with the other industrial arts of Japan was superficial at best. In fact, as far as my aesthetic judgment goes, the only art I knew how to appraise at all was painting, and in the performing arts, I had never even seen that peculiarly Japanese dramatic form, the no. I began by going to visit a friend who was well-versed in ancient Japanese implements and asking him to teach me about pottery. I had always been rather contemptuous of this friend's interest in curios without knowing exactly why. But as I listened to his instruction, I gradually came to understand that not everything can be lumped together or dismissed as an interest in curios. In antiques, there are deep and shallow as in other fields. There is everything from the retired dilettante to the serious scholar and aesthete in the connoisseurship of Japanese art and culture. The spirit of the age, the lifestyle of the people of the age, can emerge from a single old food bowl. 
As I listened to my friend teach me about ceramics, I realized that there were still limitless things for me to study and absorb. During the war, I had been starved for beauty, so I rushed headlong into the world of traditional Japanese arts as to a feast. I may have been motivated by a desire to escape from the reality around me, but what I managed to learn, despite the motive, was nevertheless of great value. 